you're a person of faith and you happen to have a lot of money, what should you do? Well, you shouldn't waste it. Good morning, Blue Water. We're so glad you're here with us this morning. Pray that you feel the presence of the Lord in every household, wherever you're at.
that you're working. You never stop, you never stop working. You never stop, you never stop working. Even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. You never stop, you never stop working. You never stop, you never stop working. Even when I don't see it, you're working.
faithful you are. Ephesians 3 verse 20 says this, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, 
forever and ever. Father, we just thank you that you want to, you can do more than we can even imagine, more than we can comprehend. And we step back into that mindfulness this morning as we remember how unlimited you are, how willing you are, how generous you are within us and through us. And we give you glory this morning as we remember your goodness, your abundance, how rich we are in you. We put our hearts back into thankfulness this morning and in awe of your greatness and your goodness. We love you, Jesus. We give you the glory. Amen. Aloha, everyone. Thank you again for joining us for another online Blue Water service. We're going to continue on with our worship through our tithes and our offerings. And if this is your first time checking us out, or if you've just been kind of visiting from periodically, please feel no obligation to give. This is really for the majority of us who call Blue Water home. And so there's multiple ways you can give. You can go online to our website and give through PayPal, credit card, or even texting. Or if you're a traditionalist, you can send your checks to our office at 810 North Vineyard Boulevard in beautiful Honolulu, Hawaii. This weekend is another Sunday fun day and it'll be held in Waikiki at Kaimana Beach in the morning. And if you're interested in doing uh, checking that out, please feel free to contact Rolo. It's been a really fun and amazing time of fellowship together, especially in a very safe outdoor setting. We're gonna continue on with our sermon series of what does faith get you when? and how the power of faith with different situations and circumstances can really transform uh, those situations. And today, our Pastor Jordan is gonna talk about what does faith get you when you are rich? All right, so let's tune in on that. There's a lot of debate these days about uh, the rich and the poor and social equity and who owes what to whom and all of that stuff. But let's take uh, one gracious step back for a second and ask a, a more basic question, which is this. Let's say that you're rich. Maybe not super rich, maybe just moderately rich by American standards. And, and let's say that you're also a person of faith. What helpful thing does faith get you as a rich person? And the answer is that faith empowers you to not waste it. Uh, we're doing this sermon series called, What Does Faith Get You? And the idea is to know what a healthy faith person does in different situations, different contexts. So when you're poor, what does faith get you? Today, when you're wealthy, what does faith get you? Uh, when you're lonely or overwhelmed with people, when you're lost in life or inundated with opportunities, when you're strong or weak or angry or content, what is the proper faith response in those situations? And the occasion for this sermon series is that in the normal course of life in the world these days, I don't think we're being given a lot of healthy models of of faith behavior. We're not being shown what health is in certain contexts. So I'm just going to examine that. What does faith get us? What does healthy faith get us in certain circumstances? And today, again, we're going to talk about what does 
faith get you when you feel rich, when you have a certain amount of, of wealth? I don't feel like a particularly wealthy person um, in, in my context, but there have been times in life where I have had these experiences where all of a sudden I feel like I have plenty. I feel like I have more than enough. Maybe I'm on my way uh, to being rich. I was thinking about one of those instances uh, this past week, and it's a story that I've told, but probably not for years, about how I paid off my student debt. Anybody ever have any student debt uh, around here? Still do. Yeah. Um, so uh, the story went like this. Uh, in college, uh, I worked very, very hard to get through without accruing a lot of debt. I uh, worked hard to get my degree in just three years instead of four. There were periods in my college career in which I was working up to four jobs simultaneously. Nevertheless, because I went to a kind of expensive school, uh, I graduated with a fair amount of, of debt. Here's the thing about student debt. If you stay in school, you don't have to pay it back. There's a little exemption. So shortly after I graduated as an undergrad, and a couple years went by, I did some ministry, but I quickly went into grad school and all my debt payments were suspended for the whole time I was in grad school and doing my postdoc fellowships and stuff like that. Uh, so that was good news. Toward the end of my graduate school career, when I was trying to start my professional career in higher academia, uh, things started not going so well. Uh, I didn't get a lot of job interviews. And, and one day, my, uh, one of my dissertation advisors pulled me into his office and he looked me in the eyes. God bless him. I think he was really trying to inspire me and do a good thing. But he said to me, look, Jordan, you've done well, you're smart, but with a politically unpopular research topic, you will never get a job in academia. You are unemployable. And then to his credit, God bless him, he went on and said, but you're a good writer. And I think what you need to do is make your writing your path in life. You need to invest in that. A non-believer, I thought this fairly prophetic statement that he made, and to the degree that I've, you know, I've done what he said, I think things have turned out uh, better for me uh, professionally than not. But I rejected his advice because it made me feel impoverished. He's like, no way, I have invested all of this into my academic career. I'm not gonna give up just because you said so. So I persisted for a couple of years. I didn't manage to win <clears throat> a couple postdocs. I worked at Harvard for a short amount of time, but the long and short of it was, um, it wasn't just that I, I wasn't given an academic job, but in four and a half years on the job market, I was never even given a single job interview. I was completely shut down, completely blackballed um, uh, because of how academia works. Um, so I was, I was devastated. Um, but I did something that I've done a thousand times in my life, even though I felt very impoverished and sort of rejected, I rallied, I rallied. Um, perhaps not well, but I found some faith in there. Uh, and it came time, I left academia and I was searching for a job, I couldn't find a good one, and I had to start paying back the student debt. So Sonia and I had about $3,000 in all the world and I felt led by God to take that money and invest it in the stock market as I had a friend who had given me a stock tip. I do not necessarily recommend this financial strategy as a rule, 
but we kind of felt like this was the thing to do. So I took $3,000 and I invested it in a certain stock. And a week later, that stock hit and it just went through the roof. And I made like $30,000 uh, just overnight uh, on this stock, which was enough to pay off my student debt. And I had 20 some odd thousand dollars later. It had continued to rise. So I think at the end, I had about $30,000 in liquid assets after I paid off my student debt. It was really cool. And in part to celebrate, what I decided to do then was to go on a sailing trip. My landlord had a sailboat. Um, so uh, he invited me to sail with him from Boston to Bermuda, which is a great trip. Ended up being a rather adventurous trip, but it was great. I loved doing that. And upon leaving, I gave my wife some tragically vague instructions about managing our limited stock portfolio. I uh, wasn't very good at it. Um, and so what happened was while I was sailing, the stock tanked and lost all the money uh, that I had earned. So when I came back to town from my sailing trip, to make a long story short, we were debt free, but we were also flat broke. So it's like bro broken even. So for a moment, I felt like things were going to go well. But there was more to it than that for me, because I felt like having success with this tip and God providing a windfall out of nowhere, that maybe this was the way that he was going to make a path for me in the world. You know, this was the way that he was going to provide for me. And when that was suddenly taken away and it was back to zero, I really crashed. I really crashed. That kind of did me in. And it took me weeks, probably months to get over that experience. I was just so angry. I felt more impoverished than I had felt at the beginning, even though I had actually erased a debt, you know, and I should have felt less impoverished. Long story. Uh, sorry if it was a bit discombobulated, but here's what I eventually observed about myself through that experience. I was better at having faith when I was poor than I was at having faith when tempted by thoughts of plenty. Does that make sense? You understand what I, what I mean by that? Um, like when, when I really kind of had no hope when my professional career was completely wiped out, when I had, you know, a huge amount of debt and only $3,000 and no job, I rallied in my faith. But when my momentary plenty was taken away, completely crashed, completely crashed. It's almost as if there were two different kinds of faith involved there. I was strong in one, probably because I was used to it, not so strong in the other. I don't know, uh, meditate on that, but I think there's something there uh, and I have tried to learn from it. Um, the faith that it takes to live in at least perceived poverty is a little different than the faith that's required to live in perceived plenty. So today I wanna to talk about the faith required to live in perceived plenty. Another illustration I think of has to do with professional athletes because this statistic is actually fairly well known. Um, a lot of professional athletes, let's say in the NFL, football players, they have overcome lives of poverty on their way to athletic success. A lot of them come from very disadvantaged backgrounds, um, a lot of minorities in the NFL and stuff like that. 
Um, but they have succeeded at it. You know, they have managed it very well. And then they become an NFL athlete, and most of them become millionaires fairly quickly. The depressing statistic is this, that within roughly three years of retirement, 83% of NFL athletes are bankrupt. They have lost all of their money. And it tells me that they have extraordinary skill sets when it comes to overcoming poverty and lousy skill sets when it comes to successfully living in plenty and managing that, which is a, a sort of garish example of what I think is a deceptively common problem. Um, we just don't manage plenty very well as a people. We don't have a lot of healthy models uh, for doing it. Anyway, that's kind of what I want to talk about today. Next week, we'll talk about what faith gets you when you're poor. Today, what does faith get you when you're at least moderately rich? When we think about the kingdom of God, we might be used to thinking about what the kingdom gets us when we're kind of poor, right? Because it seems like that's the time when faith is mostly required. And I guess I wouldn't argue uh, with that. But the Bible has lots of advice about how to overcome uh, material challenges. And we've really imbibed a lot of that advice as Blue Water as a, as a faith community, one of our key virtues is being anti-materialistic, being money-free, being radically generous, and being just, and remembering the poor first, and stuff like that. And all that, of course, is encouraged by Scripture. That's why we are the way that, that we are. Uh, Jesus says, point blank, don't ever worry about money, period, full stop, no exceptions. He says that repeatedly. We're not allowed to worry about money if we are Jesus' followers. He says, your father knows what you need. Your heavenly father knows your needs before you even ask him. He'll always provide, consider the birds of the air, the lilies of the field. The Lord takes care of them. He's certainly going to take care of you. Jesus goes on and on about this sort of stuff. Plus, we have miracle stories like the story of the loaves and fishes, right? Jesus takes one little lunch and he turns it into a feast for thousands. We say often around blue water, in the kingdom of God on earth, whatever you have is always enough. There's always a way that God can turn it into enough, even if it takes a supernatural miracle to pull it off. We get provision by being providers in the kingdom of God. When we give, more is given to us, we are told, in the kingdom of God. Ominously, on the other side, Jesus says that, oh, being a rich person is a dangerous thing to be. He says that... Um, it is hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. He says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. He says in, in, in Luke 6, Woe to the rich, for they have already received their consolation. You know, he, Jesus makes it sound as if being rich is actually more complicated for a person of faith than being poor, which is very otherworldly. But that's how Jesus talks about it. Uh, we know uh, as an axiom, uh, because we are kingdom people, that we can take a little and turn it into a lot. That's the story of the loaves and fishes. But if we have a lot, if we're rich, what are we supposed to turn it into? That's a question that is very provocative uh, to me. Um, you might be asking yourself, well, 
what does faith get you when you're rich? What does it mean to be rich, Jordan? You know, uh, how, how would you define that? What does it mean to be rich in America, for instance? And at this point in a Christian sermon, I'm kind of legally obligated to tell you, as preachers often do, that in America, even those we consider poor are very rich on a global scale, right? Everybody says this because it reminds us to be uh, thankful. Uh, even those who live below the federal poverty line in America are easily within the top 20% of global standards. Um, if you receive all the state and federal uh, aid that is available to you when you live below the poverty line, and if you count that aid as income, uh, then by some definitions you could be considered middle class uh, in America. There's, there's a lot of excess out there that is helpful to people, even people who are struggling in, in our society. Um, yes, yes, yes. Access to food is not really the thing that defines poverty in our country, which is a privilege of sorts, you know, and, and we admit that. 20% uh, of the US population will, at some point in their lives, spend time in the top 1% of earners in the US population, uh, which is a degree of widespread economic mobility that has never even remotely been approached before in world history. Uh, and our nation is the top nation in the world in terms of economic mobility. And so that should inspire a great deal of hope. And I'm kind of obligated to say things like that, lest we cease to be thankful of the plenty with which the Lord has blessed us around here. So objectively speaking, it's easy to have enough in America and, and in the West generally. Yes, 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 we understand that. But that's not really what I'm talking about today. I'm not really talking about that sort of wealth. Today, I'm talking to people who feel as if they really do have plenty. You know, people who have done decently well, even by relative American standards. That's who I want to talk to specifically today, if that makes sense. Um, I'm talking to, say, you know, homeowners who have some kind of retirement fund, uh, let's say, and don't have to worry if COVID makes them unemployed for a year. You know you're going to be fine. Those sorts of people. Uh, let's say folks who have more than a year's worth of salary in stored assets somewhere. If that's you, that's kind of who I want to talk to today. You might refer to those people as upper middle class. I don't know. Those sorts of categories are often vague and not so useful. But I know that's not all of you who are listening today, and it's probably not most of you uh, who are listening today, although it may be more of you than realize. Um, than you realize. Um, but that's who I want to talk to today. And maybe everyone else will si find some benefit in listening uh, to the discussion. So if you're a rich person like that, I'm sort of suggesting, and you are a Jesus follower, a person of faith, how should you behave? What does faith get you in the midst of your sort of riches, your sort of wealth? And if I were to ask any number of people, how should a rich person behave, any number of Christian people, then everybody is going to say the same thing in the first instance. Everybody is going to say that a rich person should be generous, right? 
If you have wealth, you should share it. Everybody say, share the wealth. Share the wealth. Thank you. Don't mind if I do. Um, give. You should, you should give out of your abundance uh, for sure. You know, at least Christians should do that. But because we already kind of know that answer, uh, I want to say a little bit more. If you are a rich person, your faith empowers you to multiply your wealth. And today I want to talk about how to multiply wealth powerfully and properly. Because I think that's a real call of the Lord on us in this day, uh, at, at this time. Um, I'm also kind of legally obligated to say that wealth is not bad in and of itself, right? It's not necessarily evil uh, if you are rich, if you have an excess uh, of money. Wealth isn't bad, but money sickness is bad. And money sickness is something that we talk about often at, at Blue Water Mission because Jesus talked about it all the time. I think that money sickness is by far the number one sickness on earth. And this is reflected in the quantities of Jesus's teachings. I say this often. Jesus talked about money and wealth matters more than he talked about any single moral issue in all of the gospels. He spoke about love, depending on how you count it, about 15 times, one, five, 15. But he talked about money over 60 times. So by a ratio of four to one, he talked about money more than love, which doesn't mean that Money is more important than love, obviously. It's just that Jesus realized that money is the way that the world typically gets us. It gets its hooks into us. And I'm fond of saying that money sickness is so prevalent that most of us are money sick without realizing that we're sick, which is what makes it so devastating uh, to individuals and to societies. Uh, we're just caught up in money. We have made money lord in a way that most of us don't realize. You know, we will follow earning all around the country in the course of our lives without ever stopping to think that maybe we should follow Jesus where he wants us to go. It's automatic for us to make decisions based on increasing wealth, but a struggle for us to make decisions based on discipleship or ministry and stuff like that. It gets us, is what I'm saying, and it's always worth thinking about. Um, today, there's a lot of talk about capitalism and the excesses of capitalism and how the pursuit of, of uh, financial success in our society might be handicapping uh, humanity. Um, I think a better name for capitalism is, is free enterprise. You know, it's like letting people do trade and business as they see fit. And that sort of free enterprise thing has only existed in the world really about only about 140 years. Uh, because before then, economies were controlled by aristocracies or other forms of government. Um, and in that sense, I think free enterprise has actually been a real gift to the world. Even though I'm really afraid of money sickness, I have to recognize that free enterprise has been a big blessing uh, to the human race. A statistic that I like is in 1895, which was like the big birth of free enterprise, what we would call capitalism uh, onto the earth, the industrial revolution and stuff like that. 95% of the world's population lived in extreme poverty. 
lived under the extreme poverty level, two or three dollars per day in, in purchasing power. That was in 1895, it wasn't too long ago. By 1995, less than 6% of the world lived in extreme poverty. It's an amazing decrease of poverty, unlike ever existed in human history before. So, you know, yay economy, you know? And I, I feel like that's a blessing, and I don't want to bad mouth that in any way. But we know that being wealthy, that being in societies that aren't impoverished doesn't necessarily free you from being money sick, does it? It doesn't necessarily make you money free, does it? Being wealthy doesn't necessarily make you less likely to dehumanize your neighbors, you know? You may be as likely to dehumanize your neighbors as being poor would make you. And poverty can make you dehumanize people as well, and the sort of cutthroat competition that it creates. Uh, economic mobility, such as we have in our society, uh, might inspire hope, but it also might tempt you to be obsessive about chasing money. Uh, and rich societies and poor societies both get obsessive about money in, in different ways. So I'm happy that poverty has really plummeted around the world in the last century. Uh, but having plenty can kill your soul, just like having too little can kill your soul. And we need to always be aware of that uh, as Christians. Uh, you might think of a food analogy. <clears throat> if you have too few calories, if you are hungry to the point of starving, that can kill you. But if you eat too many calories, that can kill you too. Having too many calories can also make you really sick and unhealthy and incapacitated and you can die. But what's too many calories? Right? How many calories are too many to eat? And the answer is, well, that depends. Um, think about uh, Olympic swimmer Michael Phelps the greatest swimmer of all time, he famously ate 10,000 calories a day when he was training. 10,000 calories a day. I don't know if I eat that in a week, but he ate it every day. 10,000 calories a day is a lethal dose of food, right? That would kill a normal person. But Michael Phelps put his calories to work. He, put all of them to work. And he was actually a very low body fat, super fit guy, obviously, Olympic gold medalist. If you are a rich person, you have a lot of dollar calories in your life, which might make you really sick, unless you put your dollar calories to work. And then you can actually end up really fit, really healthy. You get the point? If you have an excess of calories, if you have an excess of dollars, if you have an excess of wealth, the key is put them to work. And then it removes a lot of the danger from you. It makes you money healthy instead of money sick. So a uh, quick uh, biblical investigation, uh, some of the points that we're talking about. Uh, turn with me to... 1 Timothy 6, let's read excerpts from 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 10, and 
maybe 17 through 19. Uh, this is the end of Paul's first letter to Timothy. He's given his protege, Timothy, uh, lots of practical advice. These letters to Timothy are just filled with practical advice. And of course, he's giving practical advice uh, about uh, money, since that's always an issue in every culture and every place. Uh, the first verse, verse 6, is actually a fairly famous one. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Paul says to Timothy, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. It's a fine statement of how money sickness works, right? If you chase after money just to have it, it makes you sick. Ruin, destruction, famous verse. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Even non-Christians know that verse. Some people who are eager for money have actually wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. I love that phrase, very poetic. So, you know, be content. If you get obsessive about money, it's just going to ruin you, and it might well ruin your faith and create a lot of grief in your life. Skipping, skipping down uh, the chapter. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, literally to make goodness, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Powerful. You know, it's just a lovely piece of, of uh, letter writing uh, right there filled with memory verses that some of us probably know, and a great summary of, uh, of Christian advice. You know, the love of money, passion for money, oh, that can destroy you really quickly. And Paul makes a distinction between that kind of life and the kind of life in which you use money for good. And if you do that, Paul says, you will lay up treasure for yourselves in the coming age, that's straight from Jesus, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, not riches on earth, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life, so that you'll be really healthy and, and full of, of life. Make good investments with your money, heavenly investments, eternal investments with your money. Well, well what's a heavenly investment, actually? Uh, how might we understand that? And uh, let's turn to uh, final text for the day, and sort of the chief one. And this is a parable that Jesus told. Might be the most entertaining parable in the Bible. I really like this parable. Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. I'll read them all. It will go fairly quickly. This is the parable of the shrewd manager. Jesus is telling this story. Here's how it goes. Follow along closely. There was a rich man whose manager was accused of 
wasting his possessions. So what's the sin? Wasting. Wasting. Wastefulness. You're wasting money. And that's a problem. So he called him in, called in the manager and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. He gets his two weeks uh, firing notice. You have been wasting investment capital. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I've got no marketable skills, he says. Uh, all I am is a money manager. <laughs> uh, I know what I'll do. When I lose my job here, uh, I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he hatches a plan, this little manager. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 800 gallons of olive oil, he replied. And the manager told him, take your bill, sit down, and make it 400. We'll just cut that in half. Shh, don't tell anybody. You're my buddy. Then he asked the second one, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, yeah, take your bill, and let's call it 800. <clears throat> the master commended the dishonest manager. I love that phrase. That's just, like, that's just like one of the best lines in all of the Gospels. Oh, the master commended the dishonest manager, says Jesus Christ, the living Lord. Way to be dishonest. Because he had acted shrewdly, cleverly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. Christians have to learn something from non-Christians in this sense, says Jesus. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. The supposition there being that the friends that you make will become eternal friends. They will come to Christ through your generosity and your shrewdness, your wisdom, your cleverness in the way that you use money, you will make eternal relationships. Turn cash into salvation and eternal friendship. Now that's shrewd. That's shrewd business. Whoever can be trusted with little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with very much. That's always a a confusing line for me, because dishonesty was just commended, right? Uh, so it's like, oh yeah, I want to be dishonest with very much. Oh no, that's not right. I want to be trusted with very much. But anyway, you get the point that Jesus is trying to make. It's just funny. Uh, this is why I love this parable. Be clever. Uh, being trustworthy sometimes means thinking like a worldly person. And a worldly person thinks about profit. The only difference is make sure your profits are eternal. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, which means using it cleverly, <clears throat> who will trust you with true riches? And if, if you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? The implication being the wealth that you have is really on loan from God 
So use it for eternal investments if you're smart and you will end up healthy and eternally wealthy. You like that story? I love that story. In the story, the manager cheats. He cheated, right? But it wasn't frowned upon uh, because he did it in a way that maximized his assets for good in the world. He multiplied the money at his disposal. He multiplied it into relationships and good feelings and generosity and ultimately eternal dividends. He was dishonest, but he wasn't wasteful. And wasting your assets is the worst mistake. That's the worst mistake for a Christian, according to Jesus, who is pretty smart about these things. The lesson here is to use the skills that made you or your family rich in order to make you and your family truly rich. That's the Christian uh, discipline. So if you've got money, put it to work. Put your calories to work. And you'll end up being an amazing athlete, to stretch the analogy. Uh, And I would say, and I think this is so very important for us to understand right now, that when you put your money to work, use it shrewdly, cleverly. This is the season to use it creatively, inventively. That was the Jesus call on the lives of Christians 2,000 years ago, and I think it's really the Jesus call on the lives of us Christians today. If you have excess in your life, if you have you know, excess income. You could, I don't know, you could give it to a relief charity right now. That would be great because uh, there's a tremendous amount of relief due in the world. It's not being reported, but things are in a desperate situation in many places. That would be great. Um, uh, time in, in our life, Sonia and I uh, took, you know, most of our savings, pretty much all we had, and we gave it to a relief uh, charity during a particularly uh, savage famine in one area of the world. Not that we had a ton of savings, but we gave what we had because Sonia had felt that that's how the Lord led her. And that's a key point. Talk things over with the Lord and let the Lord lead you. Maybe the Lord will lead you into something that's like that, just simple giving, just simple donations. You know, that, that, that would be awesome. Uh, hospitality might be good. Just use your wealth, maybe your real estate to accept somebody into your home. Host their life for a while. That's something else that Sonia and I have done on occasion through our marriage, quite often through our marriage, actually always pays amazing dividends. Super cool stuff when you share your living space uh, with someone. Uh, investment might be good. Maybe you want to invest in a business that's going to multiply goodness in the world or at least multiply cash so that you can do more goodness with the cash that you get. I don't know, something like that. Entrepreneurship might be good. Maybe this is a time for you to start a new business or service or to join with people to start a new business or service. That might be good. The call is to be shrewd, is to be clever, is to be creative because you're a Christian. And Christians are the most powerfully creative people on the planet. We can even create miracles if we need to. I talked about that a few weeks ago on a sermon I gave. We are powerful people, and Satan will do 
anything to make us believe that we are not powerful. Satan will do anything to make us believe that we are not economically powerful as well. Don't buy into it. You are economically creative. If you have wealth, use it creatively. That, that's a call on your life. In history, wherever the Christian church has taken root in the world, creativity and prosperity has followed. Every time. Research it. I'll look it up. That's not really you know, the main point. The main point is that you are a powerful person. You are personally powerful, you're supernaturally powerful, and you are economically powerful. I don't really care how you feel about it, you know, but particularly if you have assets at your disposal, use them powerfully. Think powerfully about it. You know, we're used to approaching money matters as a person in need. Oh, you know, we need to get by with a little. But maybe you're rich. And you need to get used to thinking about money matters as a powerful person. Do that. Do that. That's actually a Jesus call. And multiply uh, wealth. You know, this isn't a Harvard Biz School lecture, uh, but I'm here to tell you that you should get together with God and figure out how to turn your wealth into bigger and better wealth in Jesus' terms. Uh, that's why you have it. Do not waste it. All right, and so far, follow me. <clears throat> I just want to reiterate kind of a prophetic word that I gave some weeks ago because the Lord just keeps visiting me with it, and I want to make sure that Blue Water people especially understand it. That right now the world is in desperate shape. It's far more desperate than I think most of us realize. Uh, the world has just undergone the largest wealth transfer in world history. What's happening right now is that Poor people are getting poorer, uh, elite rich people are getting richer, and that has to do with the way that we have managed crisis money. We've shut down businesses that mostly run by and serving less well-to-do people, but we have enhanced businesses that are mostly run by and serve wealthy people. And anyway, we're about, that, <laughs> we're about to realize this uh, in the world. And there's going to have to be a lot of recovery socially, a lot of recovery spiritually, and a lot of recovery uh, economically. And the Lord just keeps saying to me, this is the age of creativity in the church. And every time I speak it, you know, I start to cry. I was just at a, uh, a Christian conference that had like over a thousand pastors there. And I started speaking. We we're speaking about justice at this conference, which is a great thing. And I started speaking about not just equity, not as how Christians should pursue equity, but how Christians should pursue providing. You know, we are the people of provision. We provide for the world, you know, because we are the creative people on the earth. And I think the Lord wants to multiply that in the church. And I think he wants to multiply it in you. You know, don't think like a beggar. Think like a provider. Think like a creator. You know, don't waste what you have. Be a shrewd manager. Don't chase money for money's sake. Chase money for eternity's sake, <laughs> you know, so to speak. Might not be the best way to say it, but you get the idea. We are being visited in this moment with a surge of creativity unlike anything that we've ever seen. I think some of you are already feeling it. Some of you who are listening out there, 
get together with God and work out the details. Uh, and this creative creativity and provision will require from us faith. That's what faith is going to get us. Faith is going to get us a lot of creativity and a lot of provision out of the wealth that we have, out of the ideas that the Lord has given us. Where the rest of the world sees dangers and crises, we are going to see opportunities. And we need, in faith, to move on that. We need to, we need to create in, in, in those spaces. And I'll try to say more about that in sermons that are to come. Um, but we are in a position to do a great deal of good. And the world is in a position to need it from us. This is not the time to be shy. So what does faith get you when you're rich? Well, it gets, gets you multiplication of your assets. That's what it gets you. These times are uncertain times, but this is not the time to be shy uh, about it. This is a great time to make the absolute most of your excess, of your plenty. This is the precise time uh, to do it in the world. Don't wait until the dust settles. Be the prophet in the midst of the dust storm. Right? The prophet that points to the way for protection and provision because, you know, that's who you are. Uh, Father, um, as you turn little into a lot, I pray that you would turn our plenty into manifold plenty. That we would not just enjoy the oasis of the Lord's provision. We would be the oasis of the Lord's provision for the world that needs it. And as we give, as we risk, as we create, as we invent, as we share and as we give, that you would multiply all that we do in such a way that people are fed and illuminated and that the name of Jesus is glorified. We are, as always and evermore, the people of kingdom plenty. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning, Blue Water. I hope that you found this week's message just as intriguing as I did, as we often hear stories about like, this is how you have faith when you don't have enough. And then to hear the different side of it of like, well, you've got it now, like what do you do with it so that you don't waste it and that you're able to take something that the Lord has blessed you with and multiply it for his kingdom. It was really challenging to me personally because I haven't thought of it in that way necessarily before. Um, and I hope that it was just as challenging um, and inviting to you to go out and step and try it in a new way. Um, and so this week, um, if, you're, if you're struggling with anything um, or if anything's going on that you would like prayer for, or if you're like, hey, how do I creatively use what I do have? I encourage you to submit a prayer request uh, to our prayer team online at bluewatermission.org slash pray. Okay, let me pray for you guys. Um, Jesus, I just pray that you would be with us this week um, and that you would highlight ways that we can creatively use the things that you have given us um, so that we are good and faithful stewards with what, what those things are. Um, I pray that you would yeah, just give us new ideas and that you would fill us with a courage and a boldness to step out and try them. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a great week, everyone.